Hey everyone, it's Jim Warren, Jimbo, from the Hello Jimbo Speaking Podcast and Live Digging Deeper Cafes. First, I want to welcome you to the 2021 Summer of Review. Weekly throughout this summer, I will add one of the 21 episodes of the podcast we have already published. Why? Well, many of you may not have heard the most important ones. Others of you may need a review. Some of you may be joining us for the first time. If so, hang on, it's a wild ride. Then, each Sunday evening, I will add the Digging Deeper Cafe, where we discuss the episode you just reviewed. Next, I want to let you know that we will be back in September with brand new episodes of both the Hello Jimbo Speaking Podcast and the Digging Deeper Cafe. Finally, please let this summer be a time where your life honors and glorifies your Father through the faith that produces obedience. Settle for nothing less. Why? Father settles for nothing less. So here we go with this week's review of one of the most important episodes of the Hello Jimbo Speaking Podcast. Let's get radical. Hello, Jimbo speaking. Welcome to our weekly listener-supported Hello, Jimbo Speaking podcast. Today, Jimbo will be sharing another one of his super impactful stories from the front lines of ministry, the next provocative installment of Inside Jimbo's Head, and a brand new Laugh with a Punch one-minute comedy sketch from Lifeline Productions. Hey, Jimbo, why don't you fill in our listeners with the details? Hey, Riri, thanks for doing such a bang-up job as our announcer. In today's episode, we will learn how important it is to stay open to surprise encounters when the stories from the front lines of ministry brings us another powerful installment entitled An Unexpected Opportunity. Then, in Lifeline Productions' one-minute laugh-with-a-punch comedy skit, we will learn what happens when people try to set their own rules of the game in an episode entitled Backgammon. Finally, my old head will open up and our final episode on Kingdom Christianity will spill out with some very interesting and, of course, provocative thoughts on when will God establish his kingdom. Now, this will be an extended Inside Jimbo's Head, so we're going to forego some of the extras just to get to that and have it finished on time. So, Riri, why don't you go ahead and get the ball rolling? Okay, Jimbo. As I said before, folks, this is the listener-supported Hello, Jimbo Speaking podcast. Your host is Jim Warren, author, motivational speaker, pastor, teacher, high-risk youth advocate, and life coach. But most of all, he's an all-around wild and crazy guy. So, without any further ado, from behind a cheap microphone in the dynamic life development studios in the thriving metropolis of Wheatfield, Indiana. Okay, I guess if you count all the heads of corn and soybeans, you can call it a thriving metropolis. Here's Jimbo! We're about ready to get into that story from the front lines of ministry. But before we move forward, I want to remind you that you can leave a private message or review of these podcasts on the Hello Jimbo Speaking Facebook page or a comment on our webpage at jimbospeaking.org. Contact us. Or you can even leave an audio comment at anchor.fm Jimbo Speaking. And while you're on our Anchor podcast site, please consider supporting this podcast at either the $0.99, cent, $4.99, cent, or $9.99 cent monthly level. 
Remember, 100% of these contributions go right into the Robert Anthony West Memorial Fund, which is used for my out-of-pocket expenses when I coach and disciple high-risk youth. Oh yes, there is a link to this page on most major podcast platforms you may be listening to as well. I also want to thank all of you who have committed to this monthly support of the youth I mentor and disciple. I have told some of them about you, and they all said to say thanks. Speaking of youth, I have this episode's story from the front lines of ministry all ready to go and queued up. After this week's story, you will hear the one-minute laugh-with-a-punch comedy skit from Lifeline Productions entitled Backgammon. So, here is this week's story from the front lines of ministry entitled Unexpected Opportunity. During battles, every soldier must be looking for the surprise, the unexpected, what might be around the next corner. In ministry, it's very similar. And when we look around that next corner, we're often surprised who God has placed there. As I walked into juvenile detention one day, I heard the usual sounds of Jimbo's here coming from the kids. Few people will ever say any of these specific kids ever encouraged them. Yet, man, I sure can. In fact, the East Wing and West Wing both wanted to come to class. 100% of the West Wing wanted to come, so we went with them this week. What a great class. The kids were involved and asking all kinds of questions. I love those days. During class, two young ladies asked to meet with me individually in the visitation rooms. You may remember this from a different episode in the Stories from the Frontlines of Ministry series. As I was walking over to meet with the first one, a new detention officer stopped me. Hey, my name is Frank. Hey Frank, I'm Jim Warren, but they call me Jimbo around here. I know, responded Frank. Can I ask you a question? Sure, Frank, go for it, I said with a big smile. Well, I'm new here, and I was talking with the other DOs. How do you keep their attention for an hour and a half? We have seen no one do that, yet you do it week after week. What's your secret? I smiled. Well, you probably don't want to know my secret, as I made quotation marks with my fingers around the word secret. I really do. Okay, you asked for it. I spend a large amount of time in prayer, and many of my prayers are for these kids. You see, I know how difficult they are for those of you who work with them day in and day out. To them, though, you are the man. I come in and just want to be their friend. Long ago, I gave up being a professional. God taught me the power of that in my ministry to high-risk teens in Pennsylvania. Wow, that must be it, Frank asked in an almost questioning voice. Which one, I retorted. Frank just had a puzzled look on his face. Well, Frank, part of my discovery is that I could try to be their best friend, but without God's help, it would never work. In reality, a 60-some-year-old bald, white, fat man doesn't have much going for him with these kids. I really believe it is a work of God's Spirit that allows my lame jokes and messages to get the kind of buy-in I see each week. We need to talk, was Frank's only response. Sure, Frank, here's my card. When you're ready, call me. I always make my schedule available to any of you special guys and gals who work here at Juvenile Detention. 
Frank did call. We did meet many times. Frank is struggling with the whole idea of what it means for salvation to be free and yet the radical lifestyle change faith works in a person's life. He is especially concerned about the things Jesus said about counting the cost. In many ways, he is a lot like I used to be. Buying into the just pray this prayer routine is simple. The idea of God having control of your life? I sure struggled long and hard over that one. Frank is doing the same thing at the same point in his life. But here is the great news. He is struggling. Get this, struggling is a good thing. Coming to Christ, the idea of faith turning your world inside out and upside down, that takes a lot of struggle. Some people leave that part out when they present the gospel. Jesus never did leave that out. It's as though we make it so easy up front and then lay on the difficult stuff after they sign on the dotted line. I used to be in sales training and coaching at one time in my life. We used to call that bait and switch, and it is one of the most dishonest sales tactics out there. Sharing the gospel is never a sale. It takes a person willing to begin a process of sacrificial investment in another person's life, demonstrating the attitude of Jesus. We leave that out a lot too when we try to teach people how to share the gospel. But Frank, he understands the difference and he is struggling. He will continue to struggle until he yields to the gift of faith the Spirit has planted in his heart. In fact, the interesting part for me is when he yields, it won't be because he wants to, but because of the work of God's grace and God's grace alone. I always find it interesting how Father calls us all in the same way. Me, Frank, my JDC kids, and you. How about you, my friends? Do you struggle? If not, maybe, just maybe, you need to do a soul check. It may be difficult, but well worth it in the end. Just ask any sold-out disciple of Jesus. It is my prayer that someday soon you will be able to ask Frank what it's all about. I'll be back in a moment. Double sixes! Can't hit me now. Let's see. Oops, snake eyes. I get to go backwards. Hitting you. Hey, you can't go backwards and backhand. Sure you can. It's in the rules. If a player rolls snake Let eyes... Let me see. You wrote that in there. So, it's still in the rule book. Rules. They provide standards for people to live by. Oh, yeah? Well, if I roll a four, I get to knock your pieces on the floor! There are standards God wrote for us in the Bible. Oh, yeah? And if I roll a five, I get to kick you in the foot! Ow! Okay, I get to hit you on the head! Wait! What? You didn't roll the dice yet. Oh, yeah. Nine! Ow! As we walk away from God's standards and create our own rules, we create confusion. Ow! Ooh, uh, ow. Seven! Ow. If things aren't working out for you in your life, give the Bible a chance. Let's play something less violent. Hockey? My rules. Another message from Lifeline Productions, the comic strip of radio at lifelinepro.com. Right, my friends, let's open up Jimbo's head one more time. <laughs> Wild, huh? Today, I want to review what we have seen so far in our study of the biblical foundations for kingdom Christianity. Then I hope to complete that study and make a few closing remarks. 
Next week, if we're on schedule, we will answer the question, how should I as a Christian relate to my native culture? Before we get there, I want you to think about the one-minute comedy skit from Lifeline Productions and the idea of setting our own rules for a game. Remember the chaos that caused the two fellows playing backgammon? Today, if we take the blinders off our spiritual eyes, we can see the same kind of chaos going on in the church. Look over there. Christians are praying a prayer, believing having done that, the doors of eternity will open to them. And over there, Jesus followers trying to make this life the best it can be by adding comfort, entertainment, adornment, and financial security to their personal lives and their families. Oh no, look over there. Believers are being discipled in classrooms rather than through sacrificially invested relationships with mature Jesus followers walking out their lives with them. And oh man, look over there. Another multi-million dollar facility being built when all that money could be used for kingdom purposes by people simply meeting together in homes. While that may sound like a novel idea to us today, it sure did not sound that way to the first century church and the Iranian church we just studied. Both grew by leaps and bounds. Then there are those over there. They think they are doing Christian ministry by simply feeding and clothing people without getting involved in their lives. Need I go into the pride, arrogance, expectation of professional consideration, and the lack of transforming power all coming from those raised up as leaders? Where are the simple shepherds? You see, my friends, when we compare these approaches to what is happening in the Iranian church and the first century church, well, maybe, just maybe, we will get sick enough that we are ready to allow Father to turn us inside out and upside down, both in our personal lives and our gathering together. By now, you should know that any harshness or finger-pointing being done by me is not out of arrogance. It is coming from a sincere cry to wake up. Often we are like the disciples in the garden after Jesus told them to watch and pray. I find myself being driven in these things today in the same way I have been driven for almost 35 years to cry out to hurting kids, wake up. There is a whole way of life out there you have never experienced. And we in the church, we need to hear that call. We desperately need to hear that call. And then there is the question of struggling, like Frank in this episode's story from the front lines of ministry. Who wants to struggle? It's easier to make up your own rules and set your own expectations. I don't want to struggle, but I do struggle. I struggled with the salvation call to discipleship like Frank, and I struggle every time I am about to open my mouth to share what's inside Jimbo's head. You see, my friends, when we take the path of being radically different as Jesus was radically different and calling others to take this path, well, those who have made such a call know it would be much easier just to keep our mouths shut. But I cannot do that any longer. The less time I have in this life, the more urgent the push from the Spirit becomes to speak out. So please, if you are offended by some or even all the things I say, consider whether or not you have really struggled with the lack of scriptural results seen in both your life and the life of your church. Are you comfortable with where you are? If so, either you have arrived or have anesthetized your inner person with the excuses or worst yet, blinded your eyes. Okay, okay, I usually don't get this controversial this early in this segment, yet I encourage you to jump into the boiling cauldron of Christian controversy with me as we finish our look at the biblical mandate for kingdom Christianity. 
rearview mirror and review the road we have been traveling. We started our journey by looking at the results of conventional Christianity in the West and specifically in the United States. I really don't believe you can understand where we have been or where we are headed if this first leg of our journey was not firmly fixed in your soul. Simply put, we have failed. Oh, there have been individuals who have grown in our Christian systems, but the facts are the facts. If you are still sitting in the back seat asking, why are we on this journey? I would suggest you go back and listen to episode one, Houston, we have a problem. Then search out the facts for yourself. There have been many new developments since I first recorded that teaching, and they have been, well, once again, they are not the beautiful scenery you would like to see as you look out your side window of the vehicle we are traveling in for our journey. We then took four episodes to define what I call cultural Christianity. I hope you got a good idea of what culture is, how it affects us, and how conventional Christianity has welcomed with open arms our American culture. The results? Do we have to start this journey all over again with episode one? Oh, and by the way, I hope you learned the powerful pull of culture on a person, especially the culture we have developed in conventional Christianity. This is why it is very hard to produce change. We never want to be pulled out of our big, comfortable, overstuffed lounge chair. Oh yes, did I talk about the word struggle? After our journey through the scenery of cultural Christianity, we began to look at the landscape of Iran, specifically the unbelievable way the disciples of Jesus have allowed God to move in their country. I suggested that this move of God in Iran was far more in keeping with kingdom Christianity than anything we have seen in the Western world. Remember the lessons we have learned from the Western missionaries who have spent much time with these young believers? There were two main points I encouraged you to remember from all the lessons from these episodes. First, our lives must be focused on internalizing the things of God, repentance, active faith producing obedience, and a vibrant, unwavering love for Jesus that drives us to obedience. This must happen regardless of the consequences. Second, we must couple that kind of life in Christ with a continued, never-ending focus on the work of the kingdom of God and not making this life as good as it can be. Oh, and by the way, you can't keep one foot in and one foot out. It just doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. Oh yes, I also ended this discussion with the story of the Iranian Christian who moved to the United States and wanted to return to Iran. What was her reason for wanting to return to a place of a hard life filled with consistent persecution of Christians? She felt that there is a satanic lullaby here, and all the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. Remember, Houston, we have a problem. This disciple was willing to give up the freedoms and financial benefits of living in America to return to a place of severe persecution just to be invigorated by on-fire, spirit-led fellow disciples. Once again, we got out and stretched our legs at this vista, which overlooked the power of kingdom Christianity. And then we sounded the trumpets. By now, you have to know how much I love sound effects, but why did we sound the trumpets? We began to open our Bible and take a look at the biblical mandate for kingdom Christianity. The first thing we looked at was how the fulfillment of a promised kingdom was not only how all Jewish leaders in Jesus' day interpreted the whole Old Testament, but the very purpose of Jesus coming into this world. It is a gospel that omits this key fact that brings about easy believism and allows the satanic lullaby to put us to sleep. 
I then introduced you to the two questions I was using to segment this teaching. We began with the first, what constitutes the kingdom and how should it affect our lives today as Jesus followers? The second part is what we will focus on today. When will God establish his kingdom? I first established the fact that the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven stand for the kingdom the Messiah was to establish. Their usage was determined by the audience on which the gospel writer focused. Kingdom of heaven was used for a Jewish audience and kingdom of God for a Gentile audience. In the second point of focus, we saw why the Jewish leaders missed the kingdom Messiah Jesus established. They missed it because Jesus' kingdom was spiritual, not physical. Many of us do the same thing today. The key here is to remember how our Western minds try to keep pulling us back to the false assumption that the spiritual cannot be as real and have as much of a powerful effect in our lives as the physical. It is also easier to ignore that which is spiritual, not physical. This seems to permeate the church today because of our focus on rationalistic intellectualism and knowing scripture from a systematic doctrinal standpoint rather than on the internalization of scripture while living, walking in the spirit. I then shared how the way the terms kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably. Sometimes this was true in the same passage. However, this was mainly seen in the way each gospel writer describes parallel events and teachings from the life of Jesus. In concluding this point, I shared a way to remember how these terms work together. The kingdom is God's kingdom over which he rules. It's spiritual, not physical, and it has all the hallmarks of heaven. I then asked you a question that most people who have been in an evangelical church for a few years think has an easy answer. What is the gospel? We talked about how most people focus on how Jesus came to die on the cross and was raised from the dead so that they can be forgiven and go to heaven. I did not dispute that a person in Christ will go to heaven when they die, and that this has everything to do with Jesus' death and resurrection. However, I showed you that the biblical answer has a different emphasis. We looked at the fact that the gospel talked about in the Bible, especially in the gospel accounts, was the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is all about Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament through the establishment of the promised kingdom. This happened by Jesus' incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Through his death and resurrection, those with active faith in him have victory over the guilt and power of sin, as well as a redeemed purpose which was lost through sin. The emphasis is not on going to heaven when we die, but accepting Jesus' invitation to enter into him and his kingdom so we can live in relationship with the Holy Spirit and accomplish the spreading of his kingdom throughout the world. I then shared 13 scriptural ways the kingdom is described that lets us know what it is like and how it affects our lives. Without going over all of them, here are four key ones. First, being in this kingdom makes us greater and gives us higher standing than the greatest of people under the old covenant. Second, the kingdom is not static, but always expanding and growing. Third, as the kingdom expands, it permeates the individual follower of Jesus, the community of Jesus' followers, and the native culture in which it exists. And finally, the kingdom is at hand. That, my friends, leads us into our question of the day, when will God establish his kingdom? I know that was a long review of where we have been. Actually, it was longer than I expected. I know, I know. That was no surprise to you, was it? I do believe, however, it is important to firmly establish these things as we look at the question, when will God establish his kingdom on earth? 
the first thing we must look at is what does the term at hand mean? Jesus and John the Baptist used the term at hand when referring to the kingdom coming. In both of my books, Communing with the Trinity and the Radical Jesus Prayer, I have provided a chart to look at the primary scriptures where the term at hand can be found. All but two of them specifically refer to the kingdom being at hand. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later in chapter 4 of the same gospel, verse 17, Jesus began his ministry by preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later yet in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells the original 12 disciples as he sends them out to minister, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In his gospel, chapter 1, verse 15, Mark records Jesus beginning his ministry with these words, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Three times, Jesus came back to his sleeping disciples in the garden and rebuked them for not praying with him. We read in Matthew, chapter 26, verse 45 and 46, that Jesus said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Finally, Mark refers to Jesus' words to his sleeping disciples in the same way Matthew refers to them. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The thing described the most as at hand is the kingdom. Mark 1.15 gives us the 3,000-foot overview of Jesus' ministry. He describes the kingdom as the time of fulfillment. Allow me to refresh your memory with that verse from the New American Standard Bible. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There are two very important things we see here. First, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Second, Jesus tells us why the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I want to share with you a translation of Mark chapter 1, verse 15, found in Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. All the preliminaries have been taken care of, he said, and the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. Review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. Further on in the book, Willard explains how the people of Jesus' day knew that at hand meant now available. Jesus' hearers understood the invitation to base their own lives on the rule of God, the kingdom of God, being at hand. Of course, they had no general understanding of what was involved, but they knew Jesus meant that he was acting with God and God with him, that God's rule, God's kingdom, was effectively present through him. Now we are getting somewhere. When we look at Matthew 26, 45 through 46, and the parallel passage in Mark 14, 42, we see why Willard spoke of the rule of God or kingdom of God as being accessible. The setting is in the garden where Jesus led his disciples to pray. Jesus' prayer during this time, well, they were intense. Yet when he returned to the disciples three different times, they were sleeping. Here we have Jesus' response the final time he found them sleeping. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Matthew 26, 45 through 46. What was at hand? The hour in which the betrayal of Jesus would take place. Who was at hand? The one who would betray Jesus. When did all this take place? At that very moment as Jesus was speaking. 
In the very next verse we read, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, the one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. It is easy to see in this example, at hand means now. This is in keeping with the Greek word used for at hand, engizo. This word means things that are imminent. It also means to join one thing to another or to approach. This is why some English translators use the following terms to translate engizo. The time has come, the hour is come, the hour has drawn nigh, and the moment is close at hand. Luke gives us the clearest scripture that shows the meaning of engizo. Here, Jesus gives a commission to 72 of his disciples. He is sending them out to practice what they have observed in him. He is sending them in pairs ahead of him to every place he was going. Jesus gives them specific instructions, including this, Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. And Gizzo, that's Luke 10, 8 through 9. When healed by a miracle, people are not waiting for anything. It happened right then, right there. Thus, it becomes obvious, at hand, has nothing to do with waiting. It is here, right here, right now is here now becomes the obvious meaning of at hand. This is akin to us saying something like in hand when we have received the item. There is one more key to understanding that the kingdom of God was, without a doubt, established by Jesus' first coming. The phrase, the time is fulfilled, found in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is the key to this issue and is irrefutable. Reading this in English casts out all uncertainty. However, if you look at the Greek word for fulfilled, plerao, it literally means to make replete or to cram. Thayer's Greek lexicon speaks of plearo in these terms, to make full, to fill, to fill up, to cause to abound, to furnish, or to supply liberally. However, it is even more important to look at the parsing of this verb. It is a perfect tense with an indicative mood. By the way, this is the same parsing for engizo, the Greek word for at hand. The key here in both instances is the perfect tense of the two verbs. First, you must recognize that in Greek, the aspect of a verb is far more important than the time of the verb. The aspect of the verb has to do with the kind of action that was happening. While a perfect tense is past tense, which makes the establishment of the kingdom as something that had already taken place, the aspect is an action that is completed. Remember, this is true for the Greek word translated at hand. Yet the perfect tense goes one step farther. In a perfect tense, not only has the action already taken place at a specific point of time in the past, but the results of that action are continuing into the present. In other words, we could translate this part of Mark 1.15 as, The time has already happened and is affecting you this very day because the rule of God is here, right now. The reason this can be translated in such a definitive way is the indicative mood of the verbs translated fulfilled and at hand. An indicative mood is a mood of certainty. Simply stated, this is an emphasis on the action being an established fact. Now that we have established that the kingdom of God has already come and has been established by Messiah Jesus, I must persist in making a point I alluded to earlier. 
Just because Jesus brought a spiritual kingdom does not take away from the full reality of that kingdom. Only through the eyes of a Western mindset would one question such a statement. Yes, there is a time when this kingdom will be physical, yet it will be no more real than it is today. The only difference is that in the physical kingdom, creation, including our bodies, will be redeemed and transformed. Today, right here, right now, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven exists in all its power, glory, and majesty. The physical reality of it is reflected in the surrounding world through the community of communion formed by those who are in Christ. For those of you from Rio Linda, that's what the church is supposed to be, a community of communion. The effects of this present kingdom upon the lives of those who enter it through repentance and active faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are powerful and dynamic. It is no less effective and powerful than when it will appear to all men in a physical form. Thus, to put so much time and effort into trying to discern when the physical kingdom is to come causes us to lose focus. We lose focus on what is just as real here and now, yesterday, today, and forever. If you have a problem with this present kingdom, you will never be comfortable in the physical kingdom to come. Why? They are virtually the same. Today, in the conventional church, we spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out the kingdom that is to come. We do this while having little understanding or experience in the kingdom that is here. I will not now, and by God's grace, I will never in the future ever argue eschatology with you. But I would like to take time to put into perspective why we should not obsess over the physical manifestation of the kingdom to come. The scriptures encourage those who are under tremendous persecution to focus on this coming kingdom. However, no one in the United States is under that type of persecution at this point in history. To help you see the necessity of focusing on the present kingdom rather than the one that is to come, I would like to share a story. There was a time when I had to drive my wife to work while the landlord was redecorating our duplex. During that time, we shared a townhouse with one of my children. However, that was a 45-minute drive away from her work. That meant that for two weeks, three hours each day, Monday through Friday, I was in my car. Here's the kicker. Half of the time, I was alone. Now, I love to drive, but not 15 hours a week. That stretches even me. Often the ride by myself would become monotonous. Oh, I spent time in Thanksgiving and praise, but I also listened to the Moody radio station. I still often listen to Moody. My favorite types of programming is the interview and Q&A programs. The first week of listening to Moody radio was astonishing. Everyone was talking about the second coming of Jesus. The talk and Q&A programs phone lines flooded with callers and questions. I laughed to myself when the thought came, it must be sweeps week for Moody. It is hard to get people who grew up in the 20th century and 21st century church excited about much other than their own comfort and entertainment. But with eschatology, their ears perk up like a dog looking at a meaty bone dangling in front of him. Why are we so fascinated with the second coming? Here is the real problem. When we discuss, or should I say argue, this topic, the subject almost always has nothing to do with how shall we then live. Maybe that is why. When dealing with this issue, we focus, for the most part, on ideas. Rationalistic intellectualism runs rampant. This is why we often lose focus on things like forgiveness, 
humility, and sacrificial love when dealing with this issue. I have never heard any of the proponents of the many eschatological frameworks ever focus on these key issues of life in Christ. Oh, maybe at other times they do, but not when they are in a heated discussion with someone from the quote-unquote other side. The evangelical argument about the second coming of Jesus finds its foundation on who interprets the scripture better than the other. This attitude, more than anything else, feeds the intellectual rationalism so prevalent in the church today. You would think we were a group of rabbis discussing the coming of the Messiah or something. During that first week of long drives, I listened to almost eight hours of eschatological gibberish. Those who thought they had the right interpretation seemed to lose all humility. Those who disagreed from the other side seemed to forget all about unity and charity. Listen carefully, please. In every New Testament scripture passage dealing with the second coming, there is but one focus. These scriptures always focus on one question— How shall we then live? The Bible teaches us about the second coming of Jesus to motivate us. These scriptures motivate us to live all Jesus commanded us to do, the life of a disciple. Even the purpose of the book of Revelation was to give hope to a specific group of Christians. This group was suffering from intolerable persecution. This open letter from John gave them the revelation of Jesus Christ. It gave them hope because Jesus is the victor. Its purpose was to let them know that they were on the right side. This is an important thing to know when you have nothing and your life is on the line. Think about our Iranian brothers and sisters. That condition is something none of us in North American Christianity know much about. Unlike those to whom John wrote Revelation, we have the convenience, or should I say curse, to spend our time arguing systematic theology. We argue the correct interpretation of Scripture rather than focusing on how shall we then live. That is the only purpose for biblical theology. When we separate how shall we then live from Scriptures dealing with the second coming of Jesus, we get lost in the weeds. The truth is, we get lost in the weeds with any study of Scripture whose foundation is not how shall we then live. It is like separating the love of God from the holiness and truth of God. When we do that, we get easy believism. When we separate how shall we then live from the scriptures dealing with the second coming of Jesus, we get the I'll fly away syndrome. Now, back to my story. In the second week of my long car trips, I happened to be listening to one of my favorite Moody programs. The name of it is In the Market with Janet Parshall. In the segment I listened to, Janet was interviewing the head of the organization, Voice of the Martyrs. Janet, with all of her famous passion, talked about all the Christians who at that time were suffering and martyred in Syria and Iraq by ISIS. She decried the beheadings and families buried alive. This was sad beyond sad but was a great lead-in to the interview. The leader from Voice of the Martyrs shared his recent experience with Christian leaders from Syria. His organization gathered many Syrian Christian leaders together for a time of refreshment. Obviously, Syria is a country where being a Christian is not an easy proposition. Add ISIS to the mix and, well, I'm sure I don't have to paint that picture. What was the attitude of these Christian leaders? He told how these leaders grappled with the teaching of Jesus. Oh, you may say, they are like us discussing theology. Hold on, Charlie. 
Here lies the contrast between them and us. The teaching they grappled with was none other than, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 43-48, New American Standard Bible. Wow. They did not grapple with the nuance of theology, but the hard stuff. Based on how most American evangelicals pray, they should have been praying for the second coming of Jesus. Get us out of here! Come quickly, Lord Jesus! According to how most of us handle such things, they should have been trying to figure out one thing, how this persecution fits into a timeline approach to the second coming. Yet no, there they were focusing on how shall we then live. How many times have I heard those Western friends of mine, shoulder deep in eschatological musings, take present events and fit them into a timeline? Not these guys. These Christian leaders from Syria were focusing on how shall we then live? How in the world were they going to live that truth, that command, in the light of ISIS? Their concern was not over what Jesus meant. It was not over what Greek construct could make this command easier to live. They simply grappled with one question. In light of this passage, how shall we then live? live. Soon, the leader from Voice of the Martyrs told how these same Christian leaders studied another passage. This one is where Jesus sent Ananias of Damascus to minister to Saul. All Ananias knew of Saul was that he was a persecutor of the church. Scripture tells us Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul had authority from the religious leaders to imprison followers of Jesus Christ. And now, in a vision, the Lord speaks to Ananias of Damascus. He tells him to go minister to this guy. You have to be kidding. How could a loving God ask him to do that? I hear some of you asking that question. You have to be kidding was pretty much the attitude of Ananias when the Lord spoke to him. Yet he went, and the world has never been the same. The Syrian church leaders pondered the following questions. How do we love these people? Should we really pray for them? What would we do if the Lord spoke to us? What if he told us to go to a leader of ISIS and minister to him? Their final conclusion? We would rather go and die in obedience than to continue to live in disobedience. That, my friend, was not a theological construct. It was not something that somewhere down the road they might face. It was the reality of these Christian leaders, and they did not flinch. Once again, notice the questions were not about the theology behind the scripture. They did not try to systematize this passage with others in a way that would give them the ability to wiggle out of Jesus' teaching, Jesus' command. Their discussion was not about anything other than, in light of this passage, how shall we then live? Wow. How would you and I react if ISIS came to the United States of America? How would we react if they beheaded Christians and buried our families alive? Before you answer that question, realize it is easier to answer it this side of the Atlantic than on the other side. You would be no more obedient to such a dramatic command than you already are to all the commands of Jesus and his early disciples. Put that in your pipe and smoke on it for a while. 
Okay, here it comes. This next statement will tick you off or make you cry. Maybe both. Are you ready? We, in the North American church, have become fat. We have taken in so much of the word while not internalizing it. For the most part, we sit around chewing our cud. We have given out little of the life the word should produce. Obedience? That went out the window with easy believism. I fear we are like a 400-pound person sitting in an easy chair. We sit in our easy chair listening to musicians and speakers who make us feel good. In one hand, we hold a book entitled, Jesus is Coming Soon. In the other, we stuff cake in our mouths while hungry people clamor for our crumbs. Do you think that statement was too harsh? Maybe, maybe not. This I do know. We need to replace at least 80% of the time we spend on theological arguments. We need to use half of that time for communing with the persons of the Trinity. Then we need to get up, walk in the Spirit, and, with the other half of that time, take the authentic action of obedient disciples of Jesus Christ. I once saw a movie on the life of Martin Luther. One day, he was out planting a tree. A brother came up and asked him a question. Brother Martin, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Martin Luther thought for a few minutes and then responded, I'd keep planting this tree. Now, the veracity of that little scene is questionable. Yet, you see, my friends, here are the questions we should ask about the second coming of Jesus and the kingdom he established here in this age. Do you focus on living your life in Christ? Are you living in obedience to Christ and his word by living, walking in the Spirit every day? Are you praying for your enemies? Do we sacrificially love our enemies and those who hurt us? Are you so busy storing up for the future that you have little time, energy, or resources for the needs of people around you? Is your primary focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Do you live what you say you believe? Do you live and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth? earth as it is in heaven. Do you start with that petition within the spirit of introspection and confession, thinking of the needs of others yet unmet? What happens when you get up and walk out the door? What if you learned Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Would you change what you are doing today? Would you have to change what you're doing today? Would you have to change it to be living in line with the scriptures you know? Are you preparing for a theological exam or are you preparing for a review of your life? Are you preparing for a review of your life based on the quality of your works? Yes, the blood of Jesus, by grace, through active faith, brings us into right relationship with the persons of the Trinity, but he will judge our works based on our new life in him. Yes, this is speaking about those in Christ. Is your standard for the quality of your works the attitude of Jesus? Are you perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? Are you ready for the Bema seat of Christ where he asks, what have you done with the new life, the new kingdom I have given to you? Have your works been worthwhile or worthless? Do you pray and live the pattern Jesus gave, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If you do, you will never be ashamed of those questions. Why? All the preliminaries have been taken care of, he said, and the rule of God is now accessible to everyone. Review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. There is only one reason kingdom Christianity is radical today. We have lost sight of the goal. For many reasons, far too many to go into here, we have been focused on going to heaven and doing our best while making this life the best it can be. That is not the focus of an authentic disciple of Jesus. Authentic disciples focus on the kingdom of God, which is here and now. Nothing more 
as though there could be more, and nothing less. Why? The gospel is the good news of the kingdom promised to the people of the Old Covenant and instituted by Jesus himself. It is here. It is now. The rule of God has come. Does he reign in your life? That was pretty heavy stuff, wasn't it, my friends? Always remember any teaching from Scripture must be internalized and lived not just understood. I would only remind you of this one thing as we conclude our introductory look into kingdom Christianity. A kingdom must have three elements to be a kingdom. There must be a king who reigns, people over whom the king reigns, and a set of laws through which the people carry out the purposes of the king. Kingdom Christianity is all about the reign of God in and through you. Our brothers and sisters in Iran and Afghanistan never let the excuse, well, I may not be doing these things now, but it's because I haven't grown enough. I'm really trying my best. They read the command and then just do it. Sorry, Nike. Remember what we see as Christian growth. They see as a prerequisite to becoming a disciple of Jesus. And there is no other type of authentic Christianity, my friends. Discipleship is not an add-on to the basic model. When we become more like our brothers and sisters in Iran and less like those around us, we will be living in kingdom Christianity. The king's reign will expand in our lives and the world around us. If you are in Christ, if you belong to him, if you take the title of Christian, there is no other way to live but within the radical realities of kingdom Christianity. So let me finish off by reminding you that tomorrow we will take a look at how a disciple of Jesus should relate to their native culture. I'm sure you have been asking yourself that question. Then we will take a break from looking inside Jimbo's head for a full episode featuring a story from the front lines of ministry and a short interview with the person who was a key character in that story. After that, our series Cultural Christianity versus Kingdom Christianity will begin to get down into the nitty-gritty of how different cultural Christianity is from Kingdom Christianity as we look at some very practical realities of the Christian life. So please, until next week, go out there and by God's grace, make it a great day that honors and glorifies him through the faith of obedience. Do not settle for anything less. See you next week. Hey. It's Riri coming back at you. Before we sign off, I have just a few announcements. Please subscribe to this podcast today and become a part of the Jimbo Nation by setting up a monthly donation of only 99 cents, $4.99, or $9.99. Remember, if you choose the $9.99 monthly donation, you will get a 75% discount on everything at DLDU, including a lifetime membership. If you wait until after DLDU launches, that discount will drop to 33%. But hey, if you choose to support whether or not you use the discounts, you will be helping Jimbo make a huge difference in the life of some very hurting and misdirected young people. You know, the ones you hear about each week in the Stories from the Front Lines of Ministry segment. So it really is worth every penny you use to support Jimbo's ministry through the Robert Anthony West Fund, which Jimbo told you about in Robert's story from episode 5. Also, I wanted to let you know about the Hello Jimbo Speaking podcast website, jimbospeaking.org. There, you can find past episodes of the Hello Jimbo Speaking podcast to download, transcripts of each Inside Jimbo's Head, a place to leave a written comment to Jimbo, as well as a place to support Jimbo's ministry to high-risk, disconnected youth and young adults. You can also sign up for a weekly sneak preview of that week's new Inside Jimbo's Head. So drop on over to jimbospeaking.org and check it out. Finally, please don't forget, 
Next week, Jimbo will be back with another story from the front lines of ministry, a one-minute laugh with a punch comedy skit from Lifeline Productions, and a new segment in the Cultural Christianity versus Kingdom Christianity series. Hey, wait a minute. Here is Hershmer and Ha Ha. Hey, while you're both here, why don't the two of you close out the show together? Okay. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. Goodbye. Good.